Lord, we need your help this morning. The text that you have given us, Lord, in your word, Lord, a song that your people would sing is not an easy one for us. In fact, there's some things in this psalm that are quite shocking. And Lord, we need your help and we need your wisdom. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would allow us to be thinking people, willing to to listen to your truth and willing to consider what it is that you're saying, as well as identifying, Lord, with the people who are uh, reflecting in this psalm. Allow me as your messenger to be faithful to you, to reflect your truth, and to proclaim it, Lord, in a way that would truly honor you and and would bring about, Lord, change in the hearts and the lives of those who are listening. Lord, I know how you've been working on me through this psalm, and I ask, Lord, that you would continue to do your work today in your people, in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When I was in college... um, I got news of something very tragic that happened in my home church. One of the key leader's sons, his name was Brandon, um, waited at home for his family to get there um, with a shotgun. His mother walked in with his sister who was eight years old. He shot the mother first, then pursued the girl, his sister, into her room, shot her Um, when his father came home, maybe about an hour or so later, he walked in the door and he shot him. And Brandon was about 14 years old. And everyone was shocked, as you would understand. Parents were active pillars in the church, uh, loved and liked by, uh, by everyone, it would seem. And the church just felt the pain of what they were going through. They decided to try Brandon as a youth, not as an adult, even though um, it was premeditated murder on three counts. I mean, to sit around the house for an hour and wait for dad to come home and finish him off, to pursue his sister like he did. But he was tried as a juvenile, and he was to be released at age 20. And that was a hard time for the people in that church who knew his family. In fact, many of them said he shouldn't even be alive today. Justice has not been served. And I even heard some of them saying, he is dead to me. We don't like those statements, but those are the feelings of people who are suffering with pain and tragedy and and a feeling that there is injustice and there hasn't been any sense of true justice. While I was in Chicago this week, we were taking a walk. This was on Tuesday night. Downtown, never been there before, beautiful place, walking down by the river, and by the river, you can see this big, huge, kind of silver glowing building, and on the front of it, it says Trump. And walking by just this beautiful whole area, I mean, boats floating around, flowers everywhere, people, families having a nice time. We go by that Trump Tower, and we're walking further down, and all of a sudden, I hear this, you know, stop, hate, stop, fascism, stop, Trump. 
and ended up being a demonstration that was going on there. Maybe about 200 people or so. Interestingly enough, mostly white. And I, you just see the signs, and they were yelling this, but there was also a number of signs, and this is what it said on the sign. The only good Nazi is a dead Nazi. And I thought to myself, wait a second. Stop hate. And then literally right there under the sign is another one that says the only good Nazi is a dead Nazi. I just thought about the irony of it. And these people were angry. And they were spitting out hatred while they carried their signs. Now, I'm not here to argue the, the political side of all this, I'm just to, here, here to just simply say there is pain going on among people with things that are happening in this world that causes them to come to a place that they would think it's okay to say someone should be put to death because of an ideology. Maybe you have been in conflict with a family member. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be a I know a sibling, and they're just constantly causing trouble. Every time you get with them, there's something that is stirred up, and it ends up being, you know, just anger-filled. And in your heart, you're saying to yourself, I just wish they would go away. I just wish they would die. You ever felt that? Maybe you haven't said anything like that out loud. But in your heart, you're just like, enough, enough, enough. I just wish they would die. Now, you wouldn't dare say that out loud. But in your heart, these are the kind of things that are coming up. Now, friends, this is, this is the point I want to I make as we enter into this particular psalm because the psalms are raw. They reveal to us not what is necessarily spoken, but what is actually in the heart of man, what he's thinking, what he's struggling with. The Psalms, among other things, are about praising God at all times, but also in times of suffering and distress and anguish and pain. And the vividness of this Psalm, Psalm 137, lets us know that it is about pain. It is about suffering and a longing for resolve. It is full of images, water. Willows, songs, harps, but an image that seems to shock us, dashing little children against the rocks. And these images both touch our emotions and engage our minds. They are vivid. They help us see. They help us feel what the psalmist is feeling. As the reformer John Calvin says, the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Every line of this Psalm is alive with pain. And that pain grows in intensity with each stanza 
ending with that climax statement. Just go down to verse 8 and notice this call for, for this repaying of Babylon to dash their little ones against the rock. Verse 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be when he will be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I mean, who can even imagine that kind of atrocity? Who would want to put that on other people? It goes against our, our very nature to say that we are going to somehow harm children. So this, the words of the psalm just at first are shocking. But there's a need for us to step back and, and understand the nature of the genre of the psalm. Derek Kidner helps us a little bit here. He says, the psalms have, among other roles in Scripture, one which is particularly their own, to touch and kindle us rather than simply address us. And so we are being drawn into the pain and the heartache and, and the struggle of these people. The Psalms take us into the places of the heart and reveal for us what man, especially in times of distress, is thinking and saying in his heart in all its rawness. And the beautiful side of that, friends, is we're shocked at it, but we see ourselves in it. And the fact that we see ourselves in it means that we can begin now to think about what's going on in our heart as it relates to our relationship with God. This is called an imprecatory psalm. Now, you know, usually you think of imprecatory psalms, you think of them kind of like as a, there's someone out there that did something to you, and God's kind of like that, that Doberman pitcher, and it's like, all right, God, imprecatory psalm, go get him, right? Now, there's a sense of that, but there's, there's far more complexity to it. Let me just kind of walk you through a bit. The word imprecate means to invoke a curse upon someone or something. So an imprecatory psalm is a psalm that is asking for God to curse or judge the enemies of the people of God. This is not for the purpose of individual vengeance or personal vengeance, but ultimately for God to triumph over his enemy. Now, although these imprecatory psalms seem to be unreasonably harsh, a few things um, should be kept in mind. Let me just give you four things just to, just to think about as we consider this psalm. Imprecatory psalms, first of all, are calling for divine justice rather than human vengeance. There's a big difference between justice and vengeance. Justice is getting what you deserve. Vengeance is me carrying out what I want on that person. Justice is fashioned by a court of law, by a God maybe who establishes that justice, or a country who establishes that justice. Secondly, these psalms are asking for God to punish the wicked and therefore vindicate the righteous. Third, they condemn sin. And finally, it's worth us noting that Jesus calls down a curse on several cities. There's a sense in which Jesus then is psh, calling down for judgment. 
Now, we who are New Testament Christians don't like that kind of stuff. And there is a sense in which, and we'll get there, that, that we are not to be the ones who are the agents of this by ourselves. We are, ought to be acting like Christ and behaving like Christ. But we need to understand that these psalms have a context and have a background and have a reason for them. So this morning, let me begin here with the proposition. It's simply this. The psalm is a challenge for the people of God who are in the middle of distress to remember and to cry out to God for justice. Now, friends, where does true justice come from? If your answer is the United States of America, you are mistaken. Or any other country on the face of this earth, true justice can only come from God. And so what we're doing here is we're wrestling through this psalm, and we're going to see the people of God who are in the midst of their own distress remembering as well as crying out to God for justice to take place. Now, the psalm has three movements to it, three stages. I've identified them not so much in the heading, but you'll notice in your, under your heading these expressions, all connected to the word remember. First of all, we remember. There's a, there's a time of reflection and looking back at what happened. Secondly, there's a I will remember. And thirdly, God, will you please Remember. So in the middle of distress, we are to remember and cry out to God for justice. The people protesting in Chicago, yelling, stop, hate. We're, we're protesting or crying out to the wrong person. We should be crying out to God. It is God who brings true justice. Now, we who are God's children know that, and so we have the privilege of crying out to God, and we know that when we cry out to God, what? He hears us. His ears are not deaf to us. Now, one little just factual thing that helps us understand about the psalm is it seems like because of the images in the psalm and what's being written about that we're, we're looking at here uh, at a musician who's writing this psalm about a group of musicians, but ultimately ending up with one musician. This whole discussion about the playing the lyre, which is a harp, the right hand, and the, the hanging up the harps, all that stuff is a reflection of a musician. So with that in mind, let's jump in, and let's first of all notice what I'm calling a mournful distress. The scene has the vividness of personal experience. This isn't someone writing about things that he heard about. This is a person who's writing about things that he experienced or she experienced. What was their distress? Well, the first distress is this, and it doesn't come, it doesn't, isn't stated boldly in, in, the, in the psalm, but it is the context, the historical context of this psalm, and that is the discipline of God. I mean, why were they even in Babylon? Why were they by the waters? 
Do they go like on a cruise? Do they, do they take like a, a family vacation and say, we're going to go to Babylon? Is that what happened? Absolutely not. The people of Israel had wandered away from God. They had sinned by pursuing foreign wives and worshiping pagan idols. They were in full rebellion against God. And God, because of his steadfast love that we sang about earlier, sent them prophets. Prophets to reveal to them their sinfulness. Prophets that spoke for God about what God would do if they did not turn back to him. And they did not turn back to him. They wouldn't listen to the prophets. And you know what God did? He sent more prophets. (laughs) And they had the same message, maybe in a different way, but revealed to them their sinfulness. And the people dug their heels in all the more. And as they dug their heels in, God had said, if you do this, I will come and gather you. But if you rebel against me, I will scatter you. And God then brings judgment on God's people. Listen to Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 7. This is after the exile. This is after the judgment on on Judah or is uh, 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 Jerusalem. Beginning at verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You hear that, steadfast love. God is the God who keeps his side of the bargain, right? But here's what Daniel says. He says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, To all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. I'm just trying to paint the picture of why they are even here in Babylon, by the rivers, in this circumstance. So God, according to his promised word, brought judgment On his own people, by the hand of the Babylonians, they defeated their armies, they plundered the city of Jerusalem, they killed many men, they raped women, they killed children, and they took many captives back to Jerusalem. War, friends, is never a pretty picture. So the we in the following three verses are those who have been taken captive and now find themselves in the foreign land of Babylon. And and we can feel their pain. Let's read verses 1 and 2. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion on the willows, there we hung up our lyres or our harps. So what are they doing by the waters of Babylon? They're weeping. They're remembering Jerusalem. That's Zion. And they're hanging up their hearts. They're giving up 
from stopping their singing. They recognize that they are under the judgment of God. My friends, that is not where any one of us wants to be. But God will always keep his promises. And God is not some fickle God just kind of getting angry at you because you did something. Oh, psh, you know, hit you with some kind of a shock. No, God tells you what he's going to do, and he follows through, and he does it. And then you have to face the consequences. But, as we sang earlier, his steadfast love endures what? Forever. So the discipline of God is their first distress. The second distress is the torments of the enemy. Now, you've got to kind of think through what is it that the enemy is doing. Well, let's just read it for a moment here. For there the captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth. The word mirth means gladness. Be happy. Don't worry, right? Be happy. Sing. Saying, sing us one of those songs of Zion. So you can just imagine these captors laughing and, and mocking at their captors, playing with them, teasing them, scorning their God, reminding them of what had happened to their great Jerusalem and its inhabitants. And then for entertainment, they demand a song. They had seen the captives hang up their harps, and you can just imagine them saying, oh, no, don't, don't hang up your harps. Sing a song of Jerusalem. We want to hear about your great city, and we want to hear about your great God. A little fun, a little shame. This is the cry, friends, of those who scorn the followers of God. Ultimately, they're saying, where is your God now? And when you have been disobedient, when you have been rebellious, when you have been overrun, and you know that you're guilty, and you're in the thick of the shame of his judgment, that question stings. Where is your God? Has your God abandoned you? And we heard it when J.D. was speaking on Psalm 42. In verse 3, it says this, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? And then in verse 10, As with the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? You may know the name Eli Wiesel, who's a Holocaust survivor, and he's written of those experiences um, as that, you know, during those times in the, the, the death camps, and describes a, a particular time, and I think it's like when they got off the train, and they wanted to kind of instill something in the people, and they walked them slowly by three people who were hanging and he says that two of them were dead, but one of them, a young boy, was too light. And so he was between life and death. And they wanted them to see that. And he heard behind him a man say, for God's sake, where is 
And that's pain. And you know what? It's a fair question, isn't it? Where is God? Where is God when you're suffering under the discipline, under his discipline? And where is God when the enemy rises up against God's children with mocking scorn? Where is God when the songs of the church are hard to sing because of the difficult circumstances they find themselves in? The answer to that question is not an easy one experientially. Because of our circumstances, we may not feel his presence. You relate to that? Because of the pain that we are feeling, we may not believe what he says in that moment. How, how can this be true? Because of the chaos that is resulting from, from my actions or the actions of others, we may be confused as to his purposes. These are experiences that believers have on a regular basis when things happen in their world. But that is why we need to, to seek to know God when we're not in distress. You've heard me say it. I'll say it again. I want to drive it into your minds. Don't wait for trouble to develop your theology and understanding of who God is. You need your understanding of God before you are in the place of suffering so that your understanding of him can help you through that time. And so we need to know of his faithfulness to, to us. We need to know of his steadfast love, his covenant love toward us. We need to know of his sovereign purposes and that he, his promises will, 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 will always be true and that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he, he always... Um, guarantees uh, that, that we will have our citizenship in heaven, but he doesn't guarantee that there will be no suffering on this earth. There's a balance to that. And, and, and unfortunately, we have been bombarded in the church by the, the health, wealth, and prosperity mentality coupled with the American dream that says, you should be comfortable, you should have. There are all sorts of Christians around the world who are suffering, who are struggling, but who are godly. And who are going to enter into heaven just like you. And quite frankly, we might enter into heaven quite a bit more flabby than them. Because we've been spending far too much time on the comforts of the United States of America and the American dream and the health, wealth, and prosperity crowd. We serve a God promises his presence with us, but he also promises that suffering is a means by which we are being conformed to the image of Christ. So he hasn't abandoned you, even though it might feel that way, it hasn't taken place, because he says, I won't do it, and what he says is always true. He hasn't forgotten about you. God does not forget. His plan hasn't changed, nor his purposes for your life. So when you feel like hanging up your harps, or when you have to endure the shame of disgrace, or when you have suffered rightly or wrongly, remember that, just remember all that God has given you. Remember all that he's promised you, and remember all that he has done for you. This is 
this mournful distress. This is where these people are. They're remembering Jerusalem. They're remembering their sin. They're remembering what has happened to them as a nation. And they may even be remembering how great a nation that was and how God raised it up through, through King David and how through the years the kings just started to wander away to the place that they were in full rebellion against God. And here they sit, weeping, by the willows and the waters of Babylon. But now I want you to see that in this psalm, there is there's a turn. It's a subtle turn. And I'm calling it a loyal determination. And it's marked by that, that expression there, I will remember. There's a stubbornness that was implicit in verse 2, that is refusing to expose Israel's songs of praise to God to be open to ridicule. So this refusal to sing the Lord's song is not a defeatist answer, but one of burning loyalty. In other words, it might even be, be like casting your pearls before swine. The idea of here's something beautiful, here's something wonderful put out for people who don't even appreciate it. It's a waste of time. Rising out of the discipline of the Lord is a determination to remember to be loyal to the Lord and to Jerusalem. Let's first of all notice, though, this question, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? God's people are a singing people. The Israelites were a singing people with multiple choirs and instruments and days of festivals and praise. There was always constantly songs and praises going on to the Lord. In the New Testament, Paul and Silas sang while in prison. The church is a singing community. We're called to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But the Israelites in captivity are saying we have been disobedient. We've been rebellious to the God of Israel. Now we're under God's judgment. How can we sing the songs of Jerusalem? For them to sing the songs of Zion would now be folly, not a matter of faith. It would be presumptuous. To praise without repentance is empty, especially in such shameful circumstances. Expressions of joy in the face of an enemy would be misplaced and inappropriate. And the sorrows of their suffering were too great to sing the songs of Zion. I think a, a helpful verse of scripture that kind of gives some vividness to this would be Proverbs 25 and verse 20. Listen to what it says. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day. And like vinegar on soda. It is utter cruelty. It is utter 
insensitivity. What could be more inhumane than to take away the coat or the coverings of a poor person on a cold day? This picture of vinegar and soda is a chemical reaction that boils and agitates. It's just saying, singing songs of joy in this context just is not right. And this is what it's like when you're forced to sing such songs, to rob a people of their treasures, drag them from their homes, burn their dwellings and cities, devastate their fields, desecrate their, their temples, and then call upon them to be joyful is as cruel as it is absurd, which is why the enemies were calling for them to do it. Now, what are these songs of Zion? The songs of Zion, there's probably about six or seven of them, but just summarize them. They're, 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 they're praise songs primarily focused at Jerusalem or the God of Jerusalem. And, and we, actually, we actually sang one of them this morning, Psalm 84. Can you imagine them singing this psalm? Here they are, captives around them, mocking, tormenting, saying, sing a song. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for the joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. Where? Elsewhere. And where were they? Elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. How can, how can you sing that in a foreign land when you've been captured? But not just because you've been captured, but when your captivity is a result of your rebellion against God. And Paul and Silas sang hymns while they were in prison, probably songs of hope or joy in Christ. And, and if these circumstances happen today, the songs that would be difficult for us to sing will be songs that we love, we hold dear. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Or, or the stanza would go on and talk about, yeah, but I rebelled against God, and now I'm in a foreign land. Or how about this one? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. Oh, wait a second. How can you sing that? How can you sing a song of Jerusalem when you have been in rebellion against the God who gave you breath? But notice again the determination. They would not sing. And he says, how can I forget? Ultimately, he says, I will not forget. And this stands the pronouns turn from the plural to the singular, from we to I. How can we sing these songs in the foreign land? But now we move to if I forget you. There's something personal going now. There's something more individual that's taking place. Each person is pledging his or own her own personal loyalty to Jerusalem and to the God of Jerusalem. They are sorrowful, but they have not lost their faith 
in God. They are remembering his steadfast love, his covenant commitment to them, and they still have a hope, and they still have a determination, and they still have a loyalty to him. To use Paul's imagery, the exiles were unable to play, or the Psalms imagery, I should say, the exiles were unable to play their harps, but they did not break their harps or throw them into the water. There is a determination that is driven here by loyalty. Listen to what James Boyce reminds us of. He says, suffering may be shared. It often is. But determination to remember God and to walk in his ways is something that each of us must do individually. You must do it, and I must do it. And notice what he says in this psalm, verses 5 and 6. If I forget you, O Jerusalem... Let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. What's going on here? The psalmist is pronouncing a self-curse. If I don't do X, Y, and Z, then let X, Y, and Z happen to me. So let's put it together in that way. If I forget Jerusalem, if I do not remember Jerusalem, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, then let my right hand forget its skill. Remember who's speaking here. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. In other words, it is far more important that the thing that I do find joy in is removed so that my joy can be for Jerusalem and for Jerusalem's God. Here's a musician who sang what I love to do, the very makeup of who I am, I'm willing to set aside because of my loyalty to Jerusalem and to the God of Jerusalem. This is not, a, this is not an arrogant statement. This is a, a statement of great humility. This is what they're willing to do. Now notice if the psalmist is determined to neither forget God nor Jerusalem, he is expecting to one day be delivered from his present state of suffering and shame, and then sometime in the future be able to sing the songs of Zion again. As Christians, we will also have to endure difficult times. But we do not despair. Because we we know that God will bring us through them. Let me remind you of what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verses 7 through 9. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're just jars of clay. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. It can be lived out. 
Christian understands that life is going to be full of persecutions and afflictions, and that is all going to be the result of our walk with Christ. And so we're prepared for it. So friends, look at your circumstances. Look at your struggles. Look at the messes that you have created because of your sinful choices and be thankful that your God forgives and restores and is still at work in your lives. His love endures forever. And even in the darkness of your despair, kindle the spark of a renewed faith and believe in what God says. You may, figuratively speaking, be finding yourself at the rivers of Babylon, but it's not over. It's not over for you. You can turn back to God. You can repent of your sin. You can say, God, forgive me of my rebellion. I know that you came to me through this person and that person and this preacher and that book and that verse of Scripture, but I pushed them all aside and I rebelled against you. And this is what you had to do in order to get my attention. And God, please forgive me. I come to you repenting of my sin, trusting what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. And I'll tell you what he'll do. He'll loosen up your mouth so you can sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That happens because of Christ. And so we must remind ourselves that it is the gospel that we need. We need to preach the, the truth of what Christ has done and the benefits of that to our hearts every day. Remind ourselves that our identity is in Christ. Remind ourselves that because of Christ, our sins have been forgiven. Remind ourselves that new life is lived, not by rules and regulations and just this sense of this burden of guilt, but as the fruit of the gospel, out of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we serve and we live with joy. And in doing so, friends, we can be determined to be loyal to the one who is loyal to us. We need to fight to believe what he says is true is actually true by embracing it believing it and then living it out. A mournful distress followed by a loyal determination. And these are things that we experience and that we're called to. But then notice also a divine dependence. Let me just read these verses, verses 7 through 9. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and, and dashes them against the rock. Now again, these words are hard for any Christ-loving Christian to read. They seem harsh, they seem cruel, they seem vindictive rather than loving and compassionate and forgiving. But we need to think carefully and wrap our heads around the culture and the practice of the day. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, says about this. 
He says, let those who find fault with it, who have never seen their temple burned, their city ruined, their wives ravished, and their children slain, they might not perhaps be so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered after this fashion. It is one thing to talk of the bitter feeling which moved captive Israelites in Babylon and quite another thing to be captives our, ourselves under the strange and remorseless power which knew not how to show mercy but delighted in barbarities to the defenseless. Psalm 137 is a fruit of the captivity in Babylon and often has it furnish expression for sorrows which else had been unutterable. When Jerusalem was ravished, friends, it was not a pretty picture. How they were treated by the Babylonians is what is being talked about here. And so this is why this is an imprecatory psalm. This is why they're calling on God to invoke judgment and calamity or a curse even on these people. But notice here, there is a dependence on God. There's this word, remember. They're not saying, we're going to do this. We're going to carry this out. They're saying, God, remember. It's a cry that says, we can't do anything about this, but you can. God, remember what happened to Jerusalem. Remember what you have said about those who would devastate Jerusalem and have devastated Jerusalem. It's an earnest pleading to God, asking that he step in and right these matters so grossly distorted that if his help does not come, all hope for justice is lost. The only one that can bring justice is their God. So in what way are they depending on God? Three things I want to bring to our attention here. Number one, they're depending on God for justice. This is not a cry for vengeance, but a cry for justice. The psalmist is appealing to God to do what is right and judge those who have been excessively wicked and cruel in their actions. But there is a giving over to God that is taking place here. There's a depending on him. So with the words remember, the divine judge has been presented with the legal evidence against both Edom and Babylon. Now if you're depending on God for justice, friends, you and I must not be vigilantes. We cannot take justice into our own hands. If we take it into our own hands, we are not letting God be the one who carries out justice. Now, that does not mean use the legal system that God has put in place to be the means of justice. But sometimes the legal system fails. Sometimes the legal system is corrupt. Sometimes the legal system has laws on its books but doesn't have judges that want to actually apply the law because they have a political ideology that is against that law. And ultimately when that law, when that judge makes his decision, it can be an unjust decision, but a legal decision. 
And the only justice you can find is not on this earth. It is in God. And friends, that is a hard place to be because we so easily can think of all sorts of ways to carry out justice. <laughs> Especially when we have been so hurt, so pained. Well, if they're not going to carry it out, I am. But you're not God. And this is where you've got to turn to God. Secondly, they're depending on God for his promises to be carried out. Now, notice the mention here of both Babylon and Edom. Notice what it says here about Edom. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. That's the day when Jerusalem was devastated. How they said, lay it bare. Lay it bare down to its foundations. The psalmist prays that God would punish, would, would, would punish the Edomites for the help that they gave the Babylonians in the capture and destruction of Jerusalem. This took place in 587 B.C. Now, the, the part here that is what Obadiah ultimately will get at is that the Edomites were relatives of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they turned on their own family. There was never good blood between them, but I'm just saying they turned on them. And they gloated as the Babylonians came in and were yelling, lay it bare, lay it bare. Listen to pro the, the prophet Obadiah. This is how he speaks. It's just one chapter. So it's verses, verses 10 through Verse 12, just listen as God speaks through Obadiah about Edom. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. And the day that you stood aloof, on the, on the day that your strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. And so there's this, there is this message from God that rebukes Edom and ultimately brings about their ruin. Then when we turn to Babylon here, notice the word repay in this. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to, to, to be destroyed, Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. See, verse 9, where it says, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock, is a mirror of verse 8. This is what had happened to the people of Israel when Babylonians came into their city. I don't know what kind of picture you have of that event it's not just, oh, Babylonians are here. All right, everyone, we're taking over the city. Now line up. We're taking you out into, you know, into captivity. No, no. There was a battle. There was devastation. There was a destruction of the city. There was rape. There was dashing of children against the rocks by the Babylonians. 
Now, friends, the, the reality is that this was a practice among the pagan peoples of that day. If you captured a city, one of the greatest insults, one of the greatest ways you could get to people was to take their children while mom and dad are still alive and execute those children in front of them. That is like the ultimate cultural insult to people. And this is how people behave. You see that mentioned in 2 Kings 8.12? We actually read about it, hear about it, read about it, as it relates to the Second World War. During the Second World War, one recalls the practices of German Nazis who took Jewish children by their feet to break their, their heads by striking against the wall. We are not that far removed from this kind of atrocity, are we? It doesn't justify the language of verse 9, but it does speak to the common barbaric practice of victorious armies. It speaks to the hearts of those who personally experience such atrocities, simply turning around and saying, God, this is what they've done to us, Lord. Would you pay them back? It is also an echo of the demands of the law. Leviticus 24, if anyone injures his neighbor and he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You get the idea. Now listen to what Jeremiah 51:56 says. For a destroyer has come upon her, upon Babylon. Her warriors are taken, their bows are broken in pieces, for the Lord is a God of recompense. He will surely repay. That's what Jeremiah says before all this is taking place. This was prophetic. This was a promise. And there's a sense in which now they're looking back and saying, God, what you've said that you would do to your enemies, now would you please do it? Now, we don't agree with the statements in, in the sense of uh, our desire would not to be to take any one who would be opposed to us and take their children and to treat them in that way. But the reality is that that kind of stuff does go on. And the reality is that we can understand the heart of people who are in pain, who are suffering because of the atrocities that they have experienced. And so, friends, they're, they're depending on God. They're saying, God, this is how we feel. This is what we can't do. We need for you to act and to be just we need to, for you to carry out your promises against those who are the wicked. But they're also depending on God ultimately for forgiveness. Now, friends, this is not explicitly stated, but it is implied through the whole tone of the psalm. There's a desire to, to, to bring resolve to this. This is true throughout Scripture that God will render to each one according to his works. That we should not be deceived. We should, we should uh, recognize that God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. Also, if we think of these events through the lens of the New Testament, 
We'll come to Romans 2 in verse 5, where we read the following. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, friends, just can I, can I say this? If you are a follower of Christ, are you willing to believe that there will one day be a judgment? <laughs> That's what Scripture says. And the judge at that judgment will be Jesus. And the judgment will not be pretty. It's hard for us to fathom, except for the fact that we know that God always acts righteously in exercising his justice. He will carry out what he says he will carry out against those who are wicked. But at the same time, there will be people who are part of the body of Christ, part of the covenant community, who have committed atrocities against people, who have been vile in the way they have attacked and killed and murdered and hurt, not just the people of God, but just people in general. One of the key people we know from the New Testament is the man by the name of Saul, Paul, who was all behind murdering Christians. Now, friends, the reality is, even those who shake that fist at God, even those who are the agents of God's judgment can and many times are brought into the family of God because of the gospel. I remember growing up in England. I had a real bitterness against the German people. And it wasn't because they always won the soccer games. But I hated what happened in, in the war. I mean, I hated the way that the Jews were treated. And I remember coming to the United States, I was 14 years old, and my uncle lived down in LA, and we would go on this, we would drive all over California in this VW rabbit <laughs> with a big thing on top of it that we camped in, and it was diesel and it was smelly and all that stuff. But and I remember hiking in Yosemite one day. And I remember stopping to rest. And I stopped next to this guy who was big, kind of burly, older, like 65, blonde hair. And we started talking. Found out he was German. Found out that he served in the German armies during the Second World War. And we just, I was there with my uncle and started asking questions. He was like, listen, he says, we didn't really have a choice. We really fought in the, in the armies or they would take our families. I mean, they were in just as much bondage to serve in the army, not necessarily to have the ideology of those who were over them that were conscripting them into the army. You get that? And it was healthy for me because it helped me kind of sort through that not everyone necessarily who was a part of something is actually fully behind it, but they're stuck. Now, you might say, well, there's some moral things that are going on there. Listen, we don't, 
we can't jump into those situations and make, make decisions now about what they should have done. The reality, it's messy. But God, by virtue of his gospel, can take someone who has been a part of great atrocity and bring them into his fold. Do we believe that? Here's maybe the tougher question. Are we okay with that? And maybe that latter question is the question that we need to do more business with. We are God's people building his church. Not simply people living in a country trying to build an empire. His church is made up of all sorts of people. Some who have lived pretty decent lives. Some who've lived horrible lives. But we're all sinners. Saved by grace. So what we have here is a raw heart crying out to God. I wouldn't say that what we have here is a settled heart speaking with the wisdom of God. It's just a raw heart just crying out to God for, for this resolve. And there's no mistake here in Scripture, but a truthful balancing out. We need this picture of man's raw and hurting heart because that is often how we think and how we behave at our worst times. And we need that picture of God's grace and kindness to anchor us to the fact that God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Now, this psalm has taken us on a journey of distress, determination, and dependence on God to intervene on their behalf. But the, the question now would be, in your distress, are you fighting and are you determined to be loyal to God and to depend on him to be the one who fights for you? That is always where God wants us to land the plane, to rest and to lean on him. Let me give you three quick things just to ponder as we leave. Number one, I, I really think that in all of this, there's a need for soul-searching, heart considering repentance. I mean, if, if these psalms bear our hearts open to the degree that we see the rawness that's in our hearts, are we willing then to say, God, have your way with mine? And if you expose something that needs to be repented of, God, I'm willing to do that. We need to be quick to repent. Isn't it interesting the Psalms begin this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You see, you see the drifting going on there, right? You see the, the slipping away. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And as a result of that, he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. See, this is what happens to believers. We, are, we, we repent, yes, to get saved, but we're always repenting. 
God wants to show us our sinfulness. Secondly, there's a need for us to be Christ-like. How, how did Jesus want us to behave? We definitely see Jesus getting angry. We see Jesus exercising wrath at the judgment. Um, but you know, the tone of Jesus for his followers is to be people of peace, to be people of kindness and forgiveness and gentleness. But I want us to go just for a little bit to the book of Proverbs in chapter two, because I think that you might want to say that Jesus is wisdom in the flesh. And what we have here in Psalm or Proverbs 2 is wisdom personified. And I think there's some things that may help us as we think about just uh, we're contemplating the difficulty of the psalm, but trying to flesh out the implications, meaning that we need to be wise as we live. Listen to what, um, what Solomon is now saying. My son, if you receive my words, treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden, tre as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. You see the connection there. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, whose paths, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. And my point here is simply to say this. If you just took all the words, they would describe what it means to be wise and to be be righteous into walking with God. We need to live our lives in the context of pain and suffering in such a way that we are reflecting Christ. And third, I think there's a need for us to truly trust God. I think the psalm is screaming at us. Yes, you may be in rebellion. Yes, you may have fallen flat on your face in sin. Yes, you may, you may have been walking in rebellion for years. But God doesn't turn away a repentant heart. And the suffering and the struggle that you've been going through, you may identify as God's hand at work to wake you up so that you can see that your only hope is found in him. Now, friends, in the climate that we are living in today, we need far more of God, don't we? We need far more of his wisdom. 
We need far more of his counsel. We need far more of living by the book rather than living by our emotions because our emotions will betray us. We need Christ and his, his attributes to, to, to filter through us. We need the Holy Spirit to, to be the means by which we function and we live in this present world for his glory. Lord, would you help us today? We don't always know, Lord, the, the kinds of distress that people are going through. And we may not be anywhere near the kind of distress that these people were experiencing. But Lord, distress is still distress nonetheless. And rebellion against you is still rebellion. Help us, Lord, to mourn over our sin. Help us, Lord, to to, to fight through so that we are not saying we can't sing, but we're saying we can sing because we've, we've turned the corner of repentance. We've turned the corner and said that God is our greatest joy. And if there's injustice out there, if there are things that, that we're fighting against or things that are unresolved, Lord, we know that we can't do it, Lord. We shouldn't be doing it, that you can and you will may not happen today, it may not happen in our lifetime, and it may not happen even on this earth, but it may happen, Lord, one day as every person stands before you in judgment and you exercise your sentence on those people. And our fleshly hearts would say, yeah, send them to hell but our hearts who have, would have been renewed by the power of the gospel would love to hear the sound saying you are forgiven. Lord, not just for us, but to those who have been abusive, to those who have been our oppressors, to those who have been wicked. Because of your gospel, you've drawn them in. And because the wrath that they deserved is now placed on Christ instead. And we stand together around the throne of grace, rejoicing that you take sinful creatures like us and you draw them to yourself in all sorts of different ways. To in that future day, standing before that throne, praising your name for the beauty and the glory of your gospel and your son and your wisdom and your majesty. And the wicked will be forgotten. And you will be our all in all. We are so undeserving. because we have that yet to come. You are a gracious God. Your steadfast love toward us endures forever, Lord. It is an anchor for us. And we praise you because of it. In your name.